Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. So we're going to start by keeping it simple here, and I love uh, the story of the Philippian jailer. We won't study the whole story, just the two key parts of it here. In Acts chapter 16, verses 31 and 32. Actually, I'm sorry, 30 through 32. And he brought them out, that's the Philippian jailer, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sounds a lot like our question in our introduction, right? How does a person receive salvation? What must I do to be saved? Okay, verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household, meaning anyone, anyone in your household who believes in Jesus will be saved. This is for everybody. Uh, So that reminds us that this question was not just for the Philippian jailer. This is the right question and answer for everybody to think about. (laughs) What do we need to do to be saved? And the answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, you read that and you say, well, wait a second, I don't hear the gospel in there. Where, where's Paul saying, well, Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and so you've got to trust him to save you from your sins. Well, that's true. It's not explicitly stated here, but did you notice what is said in verse 32? Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's where I think Paul explains the truths of the gospel, where, you know, the question probably in the Philippian jailer's mind was like, believe in Jesus. Okay, that's the answer I needed, but what did Jesus do? Tell me more about him. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you mean, believe in Jesus? I, I'm ready to believe, but I need some more information here. And so Paul, in verse 32, begins to explain exactly what Jesus did and why the Philippian jailer's in trouble and how Jesus is his Savior. So that's the right starting place for us, is the simplicity of an answer to the question that just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Um, so that's, that's the answer to our question. Uh, but we want to dig into that and think through what does it mean specifically to, to believe? What does saving faith look like in a person? And, uh, and how do we discern that and encourage that in others? Okay? Uh, so... We're going to begin briefly by looking at God's part in conversion, because the reality is, um, what do we do? We believe. But everything in the whole process of conversion is actually a work of God. E- even the fact, our, even our ability to believe is a work of God, okay? So um, God's part in conversion is like everything. But I've pointed out um, four things that we can look at tonight. First of all, God's Spirit works in a person. We could call this uh, drawing the person to faith in Christ, drawing them to salvation. Uh, Calling is another word for this. Uh, And so Romans 8.30 is one of your references there. I'll just read that one aloud for us. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also 
glorified. Okay? Uh, and I, I love this about salvation. We can't control when a person is going to be interested in the gospel. Uh, and, you know, you brought this up tonight, um, Joan. Uh, I wish, I kind of wish we could, you know, I wish I could just make somebody, you know, flip a switch in their heart where there's like, oh, tell me more about Jesus. I want to know. But sometimes people are just like, oh, okay, well, that's good for you. You know, I'm just, I'm doing my own thing over here. Ah, don't you want to know more? You know, but you can't make them want it, can you? Uh, but it, it's also fun in the Christian life when you see, you can kind of pick out the people that you're like, I think God is beginning to draw them to faith in Christ, Right. Maybe there's some stuff going on in their life. Maybe they're asking more questions. They, they actually lean in a little more when you talk to them about spiritual things. And it's just fun to see God doing that behind the scenes. It's just not something we control. We also know that God's Spirit works through His Word. God's Spirit works through His Word. A number of references here. The one I'll read to you is Romans ten seventeen, which says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so as you're interacting with people, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of things out there, uh, apologetics and different methods you can use in evangelism. But I just try to remind people, keep, just keep using scripture um, because God has invested power in his word. And if you can, even if you can just share one verse with them, uh, God, can, God can use that in a powerful way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God's word is an important part of that process of somebody coming to faith in Christ. Um, So keep that involved. Number three, God's spirit enables a personal choice. Uh, And so uh, John 1, 12 through 13 is one example here. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, and you can fill in the blank there, but of the will of God, meaning it was God's will, it was God working in us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on his name. Um, we're told in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one, right? Left to ourselves, there's none who seeks after God. We, we wouldn't choose him. We wouldn't choose to believe. Um, but God, by his Spirit, uh, graciously enables us even to, even to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. I think that's uh, a work of God in, the, in a person's heart when they come to faith. God working behind the scenes uh, to draw them to faith. And then uh, the conversion actually happens after they believe. Number four, God's spirit enters, gives life, and immediately begins to change the person, immediately begins to bear fruit. I mean, everything changes uh, uh, as God comes into their life. So listen to Romans eight eleven. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The life-giving spirit comes to take residence in the believer's heart as soon as they trust in Christ, right? So there's God drawing them kind of the whole way, even enabling them to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And as soon as they make that choice to trust in Christ, God's Spirit comes in and changes everything. Uh, And so I I just think it's really important to keep that in mind when we think about evangelism and conversion, that God is behind the scenes working all things. At the same time, you and I, 
are accountable to make our choice about Jesus, to believe. And we're held accountable when we choose not to believe. Um, And uh, that's so clear as you walk through Jesus' life and the Pharisees and their unbelief and those who rejected him who did not receive him. So our small little part in conversion is belief, (laughs) to believe, to believe. And so to be saved, we must believe. So let's take, take some time to understand saving faith. The choice is more than just simply acknowledge something that is true or agreeing with it. In fact, I would say there are many that agree that Jesus died and rose again, but remain opposed to him, right? Which that's not salvation, is it? Uh, So it's more than just intellectual assent that, oh yeah, I think that probably is a part of something that happened in history. But when we believe in Jesus, we're, we're choosing to trust him. So let's seek to understand faith that saves. What is saving faith? All right, so this time I'm going to hand out Scripture passages as we go. So for our first one, would somebody be willing to turn to John 3.16 and to read that one aloud? Or if you are feeling courageous tonight and would like to try to quote it, we're open to that as well. But I won't make anybody do that. So, Who would do John 3.16 for us? Jennifer, thank you. Whenever you're ready. Okay. So saving faith has an object that it, it, it is trusting in. Saving faith is placed in Jesus, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him not perish, but have everlasting life. So saving faith is directed to Jesus. It trusts, it trusts in Jesus. Uh, and so that's our first little puzzle piece about saving faith. It needs to be in Jesus. It needs to trust in him. Now, John 3.16 is often used in sharing the gospel with people and helping them come to faith in Christ, but we have to remember that this passage actually doesn't fully explain the gospel. This comes before Jesus died and rose again. Now, Jesus explains to Nicodemus how to be saved at that point, and salvation has always been by faith. And so, because Nicodemus didn't know that Jesus had died and rose again, that wasn't part of the gospel at that point. And so, when Jesus explains it to him, it's as simple as, believe in me, I'm the Messiah that God sent. And that's kind of all the information that Nicodemus had at that point. Jesus alludes to the fact that he's going to be lifted up, and we'll look at that verse a little bit later. But that's just an interesting tidbit about John 3.16. It is a great place to go to share the gospel, but we don't have all the gospel information there yet because Jesus hasn't died and rose again yet. But it does give us a very clear picture of what faith is and that a person needs to trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Uh, All right, let's continue on. The next one. Oh, I revealed it already. Sorry. Well, uh, there it is. You have it. We're not going to read these verses, so that works out well. Saving faith believes the gospel. So this is kind of what our whole lesson was about the last time we met. 
that um, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, I declare to you that which was delivered unto me, and then he goes on to explain the gospel which you received, which you believed, which has saved you. So it's very clear what he's about to state to them is the gospel that saves, and then that's where he says that Christ died for sinners and rose again. And of course, he has his foundations according to the scriptures, and he has his proofs. He was buried, and he was seen. Um, And so that text makes very clear that saving faith believes the gospel. So our faith is placed in Jesus, and what does it believe about Jesus? It believes the gospel, that he died for our sins and rose again. Okay, so now we've got a little bit of more, more information about saving faith. Next, we're going to see that saving faith chooses to trust Jesus. Now, that feels like it's sort of built into the word faith, right? But faith and belief are words that are used all sorts of different ways. Um, You know, do you just believe that something somebody said was true? Uh, You know, you've heard the uh, age-old story about the chair, right? I might believe that the chair could hold me up if I sat in it, but I'm really not trusting the chair until I sit in it. That makes sense? And so belief and faith are used in those broader senses where I can sort of believe in something without actually depending on that thing. And so I've used the word trust in this point to help us gain the sense that saving faith depends on Jesus. It trusts in Jesus, right? It's willing to sit in the chair, so to speak, um, and, and, and really entrust myself to Jesus Christ. That's part of the nature of saving faith. To understand this, hopefully your Bible is still open, I think it is, to John chapter 3, because um, we're going to look at two verses there together. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And again, this is Jesus talking with Nicodemus, how Nicodemus can be born again, okay? Uh, And so, as he's explaining it, he makes an interesting reference in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, does anybody remember what story this is talking about? What, what is Jesus referring to when he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? Anybody want to give us the Cliff's notes of that Old Testament story? Remember bits and pieces? Yeah, so there was uh, a plague where people were dying. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. So the people had been complaining and sinning against God in a variety of ways. And uh, their punishment for their disobedience, their sin, were that these poisonous snakes came into the camp. And anybody who was bit began to die, right? And so once they realize that the snake bites are are beginning to kill them, they cry out to Moses and like, do something, save us, help us, right? So Moses talks to God and God says, okay, I'm ready to provide something for salvation. Moses makes this uh, bronze serpent and yes, lifts it up on the pole and that's the key, right? Anyone who looked to that serpent and, and trusted God's provision of salvation would, would live. So now Jesus references an Old Testament story that Nicodemus would have known well and understood. And he says, in the same way, the son of man is going to be lifted up. 
Now, we don't know if the serpent on the pole was a cross or anything like that. We don't, we don't have those diesel, probably just a straight pole, but, you know, who knows. Uh, but Jesus points it out and said, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to be God's provision of salvation. And just like they needed to look, that look of faith that says, I'm dying and I need God's provision of salvation to save me. So I look, right? It's a look of faith. And just in the same way, Jesus was going to be lifted up. And like Jesus says here, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The person who realizes they're dying, I've got a deadly snake bite in me. And if I don't look to the cross, I'm going to perish. Right? What a beautiful comparison. I love this passage because it really pictures for us the nature of saving faith. And I love that all they had to do back in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, to be saved was actually just to look. Isn't that cool? It wasn't some like, you know, chant they had to say from the ground, like, I trust in you, snake, to save me. No, no, no. It was just God gave the snake. I I believe him. I take him at his word. And they looked. And that was it. The look of faith that saved them. And so that really helps us understand uh, the nature of saving faith. It's just, it's just ready to take God at his word, to trust in his provision of salvation. You say, I need Jesus. I believe you. I- I'm looking. <laughs> I'm looking to the cross. I need his salvation. Uh, so saving faith chooses to trust Jesus. I'm dying. I need him. I believe it, right? Uh, and so choosing to look to the cross. Uh, another passage that emphasizes this aspect of um, taking God at his word and, and choosing to trust is Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 20 through 22. I'll read those to you. He, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was convinced that what God promised, he would do. He took God at his word. That's saving faith. When we say, God said that if I trust in Jesus, my sins will be forgiven and I'll be saved from my sin. I believe it. I think it's true. I will trust in Jesus. That's saving faith. And it's, there's no like list of important things we have to say. There's no magical prayer we pray. In fact, just a look <laughs> can be a look of faith. A look to Jesus that says, I'm dying and I need him. And, uh, you know, isn't that a beautiful thing? I love, I love those pictures of, of saving faith. Now, that leads us to two more passages. You have them there in your notes. Mark 1.15 and Acts 3.19. Would there be two volunteers who would read Mark 1.15 for us? Okay, Kurt, Mark 1.15. Who would read Acts 3.19? Aaron, thank you. All right, so in Mark, we have Jesus preaching, and then in Acts, we have uh, the disciples preaching. Okay, so let's... Uh, start with Mark one fifteen. Okay, repent and believe in the gospel. Good. Uh, Acts three nineteen. Repent therefore and turn back, that your 
Okay, so these two verses bring in a word we haven't looked at when it comes to saving faith, the word repent. One of them from Jesus himself and the other from this passage where the apostles are, are preaching about how to be saved. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The word repentance comes with, I think, a lot of confusion in the realm of saving faith and salvation. Um, so the word repent means to, to turn uh, to change, right? The, the word carries both of those meanings. And so the question I want to raise and answer at the same time for you is, is repentance required for salvation? We've just looked at passages that make it very clear that what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But now we're hearing this word repentance. And does a, does a person have to repent in order to be saved? And if so, What does that mean? Well, the way I like to answer that question is by clarifying that repentance as an extra step or as something that you have to do is not required. But repentance as a part of saving faith, as part of what it means to believe in Jesus, is required. Now, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Some people look at the word repentance as that act by which you actually stop committing all of your sins, right? So then there's this idea that I have got to be done with all the uh, sinful things I've ever done, all those habits need to stop, all the ways I've been sinning need to stop, and then I can believe in Jesus. Okay, so that's wrong thinking. That's not saving faith. Saving faith, just trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. On the other hand, repentance is involved in saving faith. Repentance in terms of of a change of thinking, okay? Of course, something has to change in the way I view God, in the way I view my life, in the way I view Jesus, if I'm really going to believe in Him. I mean, that's, what, that's what's happening, isn't it? When I choose to trust in Jesus as Savior, something's changing, right? There's a reason I'm now choosing this. <laughs> so that kind of repentance, that change of thinking, is a part of saving faith. That's why you see Jesus and the apostles often, you know, probably 50% or more, they include that word, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And it's this idea of change the way you're thinking. What do you change it to? Believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, right? And so hopefully that helps a little bit understand how repentance is involved in saving faith. Now, I have a chart in your notes just to demonstrate for you some of the ways that, of course, our thinking needs to change when it comes to salvation, right? If I truly come to understand that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, then notice the things that will have changed about your thinking, ways that you will have repented when you come to faith in Christ. First of all, the way you think about yourself first column there. Your old perspective was, well, I'll live how I want. I've got this on my own. But if you've heard the gospel, you've just heard that you don't have this on your own, that you're dead in your sins and you're headed to an eternity in hell. So that's got to change. And so when you trust in Christ as Savior, your new perspective is, of course, I'm lost without God. His way is the only way to live, right? Notice the next uh, row there, sin. Well, again, of course, your perspective towards sin has to change. Before Christ, you might have thought, well, I'm pretty good. I I do have some sin, but it's not a big deal. I mean, I think my good deeds outweigh those things. But remember, 
If you've heard the gospel, then your thinking's got to change on those things because now you understand, no, any sin is a big deal. If I've sinned even once, I deserve God's eternal punishment. So the thinking instead becomes, I'm dead in my sin and I deserve God's eternal wrath. Another change in thinking. And finally, the way you think about Jesus will change. The Savior. The old perspective would be that, hey, I have no need for a Savior. I'm good. I've got this. <laughs> but of course, if you've heard the gospel and you're choosing to believe the gospel, then your thinking's going to change. I trust in Jesus who died for my sins and rose again for cleansing and righteousness. Right? So, of course, repentance is built into saving faith that, man, what I thought before was wrong. I was living for myself. I thought I was okay, but it was wrong. It was all wrong. Now my thinking has changed. I've come to Jesus and I trust in him, right? And there's that beautiful turn that happens in a person when they abandon their old way of life, their old way of thinking, and they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Okay, so in that sense, repentance is a part of saving faith. Any questions on that part of saving faith? Oh, I forgot to put it on the screen. There's that. Saving faith involves a change of thinking, repentance. Okay. Excellent question. We enter now the murky waters of lordship salvation. No. Um, So within the realm of saving faith, there are a list of things that I would call undeniable realities. Okay. But also things that a person doesn't have to understand when they are saved. So you've also heard, so Lordship Salvation would be one of those things. Another would be um, the virgin birth, for instance. That's a good one because it's uh, maybe a, a, a step deeper in regards to theology. You know, it's maybe not the first thing a person's going to learn about God when they first trust in Christ as Savior, right? So I don't think, we'll, we'll start with the virgin birth, then I'll go to Lordship Salvation. So I don't think a person, when they're, when they're becoming a Christian, I don't think they need to be asked Okay, good, you, you trust in Christ as Savior. Um, now, do you believe that he was born of a virgin? You do. Okay, good, excellent. Phew. All right. Uh, now, do you believe that, uh, do you believe in the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? You do? Okay, check, good, right? Where we would go down this like theological list of things and check all of these boxes and make sure, now, do you believe this? Now, do you believe this? Now, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Uh, I don't think when a person's getting saved, they have to acknowledge all of those things. I think it's purely that they're trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. So here's my proof for that um, hypothesis, okay? Uh, Do you remember the story of the two criminals uh, near Jesus on the cross? Okay, so Jesus is there on the center cross, and Luke depicts it uh, beautifully because he lists over and over again, so-and-so mocked him. And it actually moves from really high up people down to the least of all. And so she starts with the kings, uh, Pilate and uh, who's the other king? 
anyway, Herod. Um, and so they're mocking Jesus. And then it goes to the highest in command, the soldiers, the centurions, and they're mocking Jesus. And then the mere, the, the mere soldiers are mocking and slapping him. And it goes all the way down the list. The last people he mentions are the criminals on the cross. Then the criminals on the cross began mocking him. I mean, it's just this really torturous path downward. So there they are mocking him. But one of the two criminals has this conviction all of a sudden. He's like, whoa, what are we doing? We should not be mocking him. We've done the same things as him. And so the one continues to mock and the other starting to soften toward Christ. And finally, all he says to Jesus is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there's nothing all that incredible about that. We don't know, you know, how robust this guy's theology was. Did he believe in God the Father? Did he, you know, was he even admitting that his sins were wrong? Was he, you know, did he even know fully who Jesus was? He believed at least something about a kingdom, you know. It's just, there's just not a lot there. And yet Jesus' response to him is, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we know he's saved in that moment. Uh, and again, I think that's why it dovetails beautifully with John 3, that look to that look of faith that it's really not so much about what you say, but the heart that just believes that, oh, I need you. <laughs> and I, I may not know all the details. I may not get everything at this point, but I know I need you. Okay. So, you know, virgin birth, trinity, some of these things fall into these categories that I call undeniable, meaning I don't think a person has to verbally, you know, give you their theological stance on all these things when they get saved. They don't have to, that's not part of the gospel of what they believe, but they're things that a true believer can't ever deny, okay? So here's where that gets interesting, right? So a person claims to believe in Jesus uh, and be saved, but as they open the scriptures further and study more, they come to the conclusion, let's say something like, you know, actually I've thought about it more. I think Jesus did die and rise again, but I don't think he was really God. I don't think he was really God. Okay, so the scriptures are clear. First John that a true believer can't actually believe that Jesus is not God. Okay, so go read First John there. Uh, so now all of a sudden we have a conundrum. And so my answer to that is not that they've lost their salvation, but just that they were never truly saved in the first place. It looked like they were outwardly, but now they've denied something that's undeniable. It didn't have to be acknowledged at the beginning, right? It's not part of what we have to say in order to be saved, right? I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the deed of Christ. You know, there's all these fundamentals of the faith. But at the same time, a true believer won't ever deny those things. Okay, so there's a lot of things that fall into that category, a lot of categories, uh, a lot of aspects of theology. I've mentioned a number of them already tonight. I think lordship salvation falls under that same category, uh, lordship salvation is the belief that a person must acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of their life to be saved. So they place that acknowledgement that he's Lord at, at the point of salvation. So that's like, I believe he died for my sins and rose again, and I believe he's Lord. There's like two things you have to believe at the beginning in order to be saved. And I wouldn't place it there. I also, though, think that Jesus' lordship is undeniable meaning a true believer will never say Jesus is not Lord. 
Does that make sense? And if they come to that point and say, no, I think he died and rose again, but he is not Lord of my life, then I don't think they're truly saved. I just don't think they ever got saved in the first place. So it's not one of those things that has to be believed or acknowledged at the beginning, but it can't ever be denied. Does that make sense? Does that help clarify it all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, we know that uh, salvation is a huge change, right? We just looked at it in Second Corinthians five seventeen. All things are made new, and so that process begins immediately. Salvation of things changing, um, but that's a process that's paced differently for all of us. And um, so the question is, what do we do if a person goes a period of time and we're just not seeing fruit in their life? God does give us permission to know people by their fruit. God sees the heart. We see the outward appearance. And, uh, and we can know people by their fruit. And so we, we have God's permission to act on what we see by their fruit. And so that's where, to me, the process of Matthew 18, church discipline, comes into play. Where if I'm starting to not see fruit in somebody's life, I come to them as a brother, you know, I'm assuming I'm a brother in Christ, and I come to them and say, hey, I'm concerned. I'm not seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. Hey, what's going on? You know, how can I help? I'm here. Um, I don't know that they're not saved. You know, it's just a concern that there's no fruit. And, uh, and so that process of confrontation comes in where you say, let me, let me help. Let's, let's seek to grow together. And if they say, oh, you're right, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I got to get, I got to get in gear. I want to start making changes. Let's do this together. Well, there's, there's fruit right there (laughs) and we're on the right path. If they say no, then that process of church discipline continues, where now I bring two or three with me and talk to that person. Hey, we're so concerned for you. We're not seeing fruit in your life. Uh, This and this and this are going on. Uh, We want to help you get back on the right track uh, with the Lord and and walk in what you believe, right? If they say, oh, thank you. You're so right. I need your help. Let's do this together. You know, praise God, right? There's fruit. Um, but if they say no, we go to the next step. And here's what's interesting about the process of church discipline. It goes to the church. Then the church um, prays for the person and loves the person and asks the person to repent, right? That goes on for a while. Finally, if the person is still choosing to love their sin more than Jesus, meaning they're still choosing not to, not to grow, not to, do any, not to make any changes, then the church is told to conclude there, treat them like a sinner and a tax collector, which basically means they're, they're an outsider now. They're not in the church. And the church is kind of just saying, well, we're no longer sure whether they're saved or not. Right? We can't take somebody's salvation away. You know, it's not even fair for us to say, I know you're not saved. Right? Um, but in church discipline, what we're doing is we're just kind of stepping back and saying, you know, based on the fact that there's no fruit, we offered help and encouragement to walk with the Lord, and they didn't want it. Right? We can't, we're not confident they're saved. Now, that doesn't mean we stop loving that person. In fact, we just love them in a different way. We love them with the gospel again, where we're calling them to get saved uh, and to, to have that initial faith in Christ. So it's a really interesting process, but I think that's the path God's given us for those who are not showing fruit, um, is rather than just assume they're not saved, you know, we kind of go through that process 
and see where it lands. And if it does go all the way through the process of church discipline, then the best we can say is, well, we're not sure whether you saved, so we have you know, God's clear instructions to now come at you with the gospel, um, assuming you aren't saved and, and hoping that you come to Christ as Savior. So thankfully, God knows the heart, and always he knows the heart, and he's never confused about somebody's <laughs> spiritual state and so forth. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that helps at all, but good question. Other questions? All right. So you have uh, one, two, three, four, five, five questions that hopefully now are very easy for you to answer. We've answered them together tonight. I think all of them. Uh, We'll walk down through them quickly here. Confusion about conversion. First of all, what does a person have to believe? And the answer I was thinking here is the gospel, that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. What is belief? We talked about how genuine belief chooses to trust in Jesus to depend on him for salvation, not just intellectual assent, but... The third one, are there any specific words that must be said? Hopefully you can confidently say no. (laughs) There's no special prayer. There's no series of words we have to say. Um, God wants faith the trust in Jesus Christ. We looked at the, the um, criminal on the cross uh, by Jesus uh, and some other passages too. Does a person have to pray? Hmm. The answer is no. Right? Remember the example Jesus used in Numbers. How are they saved there? Did they say anything to God? They didn't that? No, they just looked to the serpent on the staff. Now, I don't know that there's any form of communication with God other than prayer. So, I mean, I suppose in that sense, if you're going to communicate to God that you're trusting in Jesus, you probably are praying in some form or another, right? Um, But it's not like prayer is a requirement to be saved, if that makes sense. Is repentance required? Oh, trick question. What kind of repentance are we talking about? Repentance as a work Like, you have to do these things, make these changes, and then you can be saved. No. Repentance as a change of thinking? Yes. Of course. My thinking about Jesus, my sin, uh, God, those things are all going to change um, as a part of salvation. All right, so here's the bottom line. Got at the end of your notes. Somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, I want to be saved from my sin. What should I do? Do you know how you would answer their question? You don't have to answer out loud, but if you're not sure how you would answer that question, I'd love to have further conversation with you afterwards tonight and uh, be sure that you know how to answer that question when you talk to somebody. I've tried to make it clear for you, but I'm sure something I've said has been confusing tonight. So I'd love to talk further with you about that. I want to be sure you know uh, how you could be saved yourself, how you could help somebody else be saved uh, if they asked you that question. All right. Any? Yeah, Andrea. How do you address 
So Romans 10, 9, and 10 uh, is in an interesting section. They're they're not verses that I prefer to use in explaining how to be saved because they're in an interesting section about how God um, has brought the gospel to Israel and how therefore Israel is accountable to him uh, to be saved. So um, to me, they're not... uh, so, so later in that passage, there's also a phrase that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's mentioned in that uh, as well. And I think that whole section just has to do with kind of a unique interaction between God and Israel. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a personal thing, but I tend not to use those verses for uh, as part of the Romans road and things like that. So, yep, yep, good question. So um, the short answer is, you know, some, some form of communication to God is going to be used, right? If somebody's choosing to believe in Christ as Savior, obviously they need to <laughs> tell God that at some point. So, um, uh, and, and, that's, and that's prayer. But I don't see calling on God as a, as, a, as a work of salvation. I think it's just faith. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yep, yep, you got it. I can talk further with you. I, we don't have time right now to get into the... Theology of Romans 10. Uh, I just wrote out the preaching schedule. I think that will be fall of this year, maybe. Anyway, we'll, we will get to it, but, um, but yeah, maybe we can talk afterwards more about it. But mm-hmm. Good. All right, we'll go ahead. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.